Okay, we're going to go ahead and open at Hebrews chapter 12. The, the, the content of today's message is quite variable, and with that said, I'm not necessarily going to use a text in which we're going to launch out as a foundation point or always return to, but I think it would be okay for us to at least set the course by looking at this particular verse of Scripture. Now, we're going to look at other verses. We're going to return to verses that I have ministered from in the previous three to four weeks to bring some clarification to some things. Hebrews 12, the first verse says, and this is our text today for just extracted from one portion of this text. Wherefore, seeing that you and I are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, in essence, men and women of faith that have lived and walked and believed in God and trusted the Lord, and they become a cloud of witnesses, of testimony. Their life is a testimony to us that we can endure the traumas and the trials of life and we can remain faithful to God. Right? We can remain faithful to God even in the most hostile and difficult of an environment. He said, so the exhortation then is, in light of everything that the author has said about sin and Christ was one offering for sin forever. We've read that and emphasized it on more than one occasion throughout this series. And the author has repeated that principle several times in the preceding the 8th and the ninth and the 10th chapter. Uh, Christ was that offering for, for sin forever and is set down at the right hand of God. He said, then the exhortation to us then is to lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. And so today for a few minutes, we're going to talk deeper about a person's personal salvation experience. We're going to continue to talk about sin and the nature of sin and the motion of sin. I want to culminate though just quickly by being reminded of the apostles' words here in Hebrews 12 that if you're going to run your race, and that's your, that's your life of faith before God, in essence, and you're, certainly our desire is to be with Him in an eternal city, in an eternal kingdom, He exhorts us to lay aside the weight and the sin that can easily beset us. Now, I want to remind you quickly as we pray, we have spoke about how that Christ put away sin. It's what the, the Bible says. He, by one man, he offered one sacrifice for sin. He's put away sin. The reference there is he's put away your sac, the sacrifice. Or the, the, he's put away the penalty for your sin. You and I have to put off sin. Like taking a garment off. Come on. One of the references. That's our responsibility. He paid the penalty that we deserve. The penalty was death. His atoning blood satisfied the need of God in that instance that allow us to access His presence by virtue of the atoning blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. But Paul would write in Romans 6, in light of that, sin no longer has dominion over us. We're not bound to its dictates and desires as we once were. One time previously, we were by nature children of wrath, the Scripture says. We sinned because it was our nature to sin. Now we do not sin because it's our nature to sin. Our nature's been changed. Come on, somebody. And the exhortation to us is to lay it aside. Now, sin is many-faceted, and we're going to talk about it in a minute today. But that's the word for us today, to lay aside the weight and the sin that easily besets us. Father in heaven, I thank you for the word of God today. 
God, I thank you for the prayers that have already been prayed and the moment that's been created. Now, God, I'm going to believe you're going to do great things in this room today, not just in the corporate work, but in the individual heart and life. The people are not here by accident, God, but you have led them to this house today for this moment to hear this word. Now bring clarification. Let nothing distract us. Even if we are frustrated with certain things or individuals or situations, Father, let us move beyond all of that and let us grasp this moment to hear your word, God. It's in Jesus' name I pray and all God's children said, amen, amen. Thank you. I'm going to take a slight journey today to arrive at a certain place, but I would like to say this quickly. As I have contemplated this series, as I have evolved, the series has evolved in front of me out of the book of Hebrews, there's one thing I've learned to appreciate from your response to this series. This, and it's this right here. In the changing culture of the church today, and with the additional pressure that is placed upon pastoral ministry to preach and teach from things that relate to everyday life, teaching you how to live your life, how to handle stress and different things, which is what a lot of ministries kind of thrive on. I have been so encouraged because here I'm taking some of the very foundational principles of your faith, which is what Hebrews 6 speaks about, foundational principles. And you have not been bored. You have not been, you know, distracted. But I'm telling you, it has just seemed to be by the response of this church family that it's, it's something that you really are responding to and appreciating. And let me tell you today, the most important subject that you can talk about is your salvation. Come on, and dealing with the sin issue. Now, I know we can talk about having joy. I know we can talk about having a blessed life. I know we can talk about having a good job or a new car. But I'm telling you, knowing that your name is written down in eternal, uh, the Lamb's book of life, knowing that you're at peace with the Father, knowing that you are born of God by the indwelling Holy Spirit, that's the most important thing that we could even discuss as believers today. And so knowing uh, certain foundational principles are critical to your faith. And the culture, the changing culture that we live in today that is so perverted, distorted, even in the guise of religion, so distorted, if ever there was a time for you and I to know what we believe and why we believe, now's the time. And when we find a conflict that we know is in error to the Word of God, then if ever there was a time for us to be strong, now is the time. Not to bend to every wind of doctrine that blows our way, but to be rooted and grounded in what we believe. If ever there was a time for you to mature, now's the time. If ever there was a time for you to say, I want to move past the elementary level of my faith. Paul reproved the Corinthians because he couldn't speak to them like men. He said, I have to speak to you like children because of the level of your maturity. And that's discredit to the depth of their faith. You and I need to be in position to say, God, I want to desire the, the, the milk of the Word of God as a newborn babe, but I want to go far beyond. I don't want to live my life with a bottle in my mouth. Come on. I want, to, I want the meat of the Word of God. I want to grow and mature in who I am and knowing what I believe. And if you don't set your heart, it doesn't just arbitrarily happen. You have to set your heart to study. 
So the last three weeks, or the three of the last four weeks, Michael was with us, and I'll take you on a brief journey out of the book of Hebrews. The first week we went through a quick overview of the book of Hebrews, establishing a principle that was critical to the book. Then that is the, the intent of the author. The intent of the author was this, that there were Jewish believers that had accepted Christ as the atoning sacrifice, but due to the persecution of the Judaizers of their community, many of them were wavering and some were even close to falling back into an antiquated and outdated uh, measure of worship God before God and that was Judaism. And I have established this principle that without some measure of the knowledge of Judaism then you can in no wise fully understand the content of the book. So you have to educate yourself to a certain degree in that area. And so that first sermon didn't seem to get off the ground but, but I think it was laying a, a, the right foundation. Perhaps we were going low so that we could then build up. But the second week that we began to experience some momentum with this series when I just had everybody stand up for a minute and then I had you sit down, right? Because as he is at rest, we are to be at rest. We're to labor to enter into that rest. We're at peace with God. So we concluded with the emphasis on Mephibosheth being seated at the table of David, being blessed by David, even though he hadn't done anything to deserve that blessing. But he was, his father was in covenant with David, and that was the analogy that you and I can rest at the table of God, not because of our merit, because we were weighed in the balances and we were found lacking. However, because of Christ and his atoning blood, you and I can be seated at the table. Do y'all remember that sermon? Last week, we went into the context of Hebrews chapter 10, we use the reference a new and a living way. It's probably the, one of the greater responses that I've gotten from a sermon and I think it, it invoked some things in, in the heart and mind of both the listener and the hearer and, 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 it, and it calls you to study and it's and it shared with you that many times in the church in the past we've attempted to take that obsolete system of worship before God which was Judaism and try to draw certain principles and certain uh, practices out of it and weave it into the heart of the new and you can't do that because this is a new and a living way. Right? By the veil of his flesh. I don't come before God by the atoning sacrifice of a bullock or a goat or a high priest or Jerusalem or a temple mound. I don't do I enter in by the veil of his flesh in full confidence, full assurance that I'm accepted before the Lord. Right? That's a new and a living way. Whether you're praying for me, whether you bless me, whether you think I'm saved, that's not the issue. If in my heart I believe that Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross was sufficient for my sins, then I have access to the Father. And when we come together, we're to consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. He exhorts us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, that we need these moments right here. We need the encouragement that the church gives, and we need even at times the instruction that the church gives, and there are times we even need the reproof that the church gives. There are times that we need a pastor to be more than just gentle. I believe in being gentle and being an encourager, but there are times you have to be authoritative and strong and bold. We have to be confrontational because the truth, the truth is the thing that you need in your heart above all else. The Bible says it's a good thing for the heart to be established by grace. So for a few moments today, I, just be honest, I'm going to acknowledge that I have done something the last three weeks that's going to create some measure of a response today. I don't know, I'm kind of juggled whether or not I should go this direction, but I eventually chose 
to, and I hope that I'm in the leading of the Holy Spirit. Each week I've skimmed over a viable and a long-standing argument that has fragmented the church for many years. So three of the four services I've skimmed over this particular subject matter. The subject matter was this. Is it possible for a believer, someone genuinely born again, to become unregenerate, if I could use that term, if I create that term, if it is a term or a word, after having received a God's Holy Spirit. Now, I've skimmed over it, touched on it, looked just, you know, have I talked about it? And just skimmed over it. Now, let me say a couple of things very carefully before I, I'm going to go deeper into that today. Can I do that? I feel like I should. Because when I arrived home last week and we sat down to, after we finished eating, so my son Aaron said, so dad, you believe this in response to that subject matter. So that meant that perhaps I need to do a little bit better job of clarifying a position. Well, let me say this first of all. The church has been fragmented over this subject for many years. This church, there are people that I love and I will break bread with you any day of the week and my heart is woven to you today. But there are people of differing positions under the sound of my voice right here today. Okay? I'm going to be honest with you. Many times what we've experienced in the church is that this particular, these particular positions are taught to us by theologians whose minds are so trained academically that it kind of is a difficult subject matter to actually make any sense out of because I'm not a Greek scholar. So I can't come up here and say, well, that verse says this because in the Greek it means that. All I can give you is kind of surface level the way it's written in the King James Version of the Bible, okay? So that's what we're going to delve into for just a little bit today so that we can make certain, not necessarily conclusions. And I'm going to say this, I'm going to share my clear conviction with you. But I don't know if this is something that I can or, or yet should just teach entirely conclusively. There are some things I can teach conclusively that Jesus' blood applied to the cross of Calvary was the propitiation for the sins of men. I can teach that conclusively. I can teach other things. This is a very complicated subject matter. Come on, let's be honest. It's a very complicated subject matter. But at the same time, I think perhaps you need to hear at least a matter of, of, of this argument, at least from the angle that when I study... As your pastor, since you hear me week after week, then perhaps I could at least bring you to a little bit of clarification of what's in my mind when I read past some of these certain passages. So here's, I'm going to kind of delve into it just from the very beginning. Are you all okay with that? I know it's hot in here and I know you're afraid of the, the, the wind and the rain and the snow. This is my moment. Are you all ready? Oh, Jesus of Nazareth. Do I believe that it is possible for a believer who is genuinely born of the Holy Spirit to later be lost or apostate, perhaps would be a better word? Do I believe that? If it was in front of me and I had to give a yes or a no answer. This is, I'm putting myself out there today. I tried to sell the farm and it didn't sell. So I'm stuck. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. 
but I do believe so in the most extreme cases. Not the pattern of life that I had been taught and visibly witnessed as a young man growing up. First of all, I'm going to start with this right here. In order to even contemplate some measure, I narrowed it down into layman's terms. The depth of the conversation is much deeper than this. But we're going to go just in layman's terms. I think you start, first of all, with attempting to understand what does true conversion mean? What does it mean when we say you're saved? What does that mean? Saved from what? From the wrath to come? Saved. When we say, well, I got saved. What happened? What happened when you got saved? Why did you need to get saved? What's the difference in your salvation? What is the difference in who you were before you accepted Christ and after you accepted Christ? What is the difference? It is our belief that salvation, when you believe and confess Christ as your Savior, that the invisible power of God known as the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells with your spirit and regenerates a part of your life that was void of the life of God previously. You're a triune being, soul, body, spirit. In Adam's transgression, in the, in the genesis of time, when he sinned, it's our belief that the response was spiritual death. God had warned him, in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. Adam lived 908 years, perhaps after he left the garden, but the scripture says that he died. That, how did he die? He lost the presence of God out of his life. The illumination of the Holy Spirit. Man could know God from afar. In the soulish realm, man could worship God by the motions of the flesh. But man was absent of the indwelling Holy Spirit until Jesus' blood was applied on the cross and God sent the Holy Spirit into the earth. When you trust Jesus as your Savior, then you become born again. It means born from above. Paul used the reference in Titus 3, you become regenerate. That which no previously did not have life, now has life. Does that make sense to you today? That you are now alive. Romans 8 says, His Spirit joins with your spirit by declaring you to be a child of God. So how to, it's called the inner witness. So I worship God and I know that Jesus said the hour has come when men and women must worship God in spirit and in truth. Not just in the psychological realm, not just with your mind and your will and your emotions, but in the spirit we worship God. And when you accept Christ, you're truly born again. That's why language like Paul used, you're a new creation. Old things pass away. And you say, well, Pastor, that doesn't make sense. When I got saved, everything around me was the same. No, he's not talking about everything around you. He's talking about everything inside you. Old things have passed away. Your position of who you used to be has changed, and now you're a new creature in Christ Jesus, indwelt by God's Holy Spirit. You're distinctly different than you were previously. That if you were to pass away after conversion before Christ, you would immediately be in the presence of God. It's our hope. It's our comfort, and we thank God for it. And that's an elementary explanation of what it means to be saved or to be born again. But what I don't believe, I said, I asked the, answered the question, and I said, yes, I do in the most extreme cases. But what I don't believe is, I don't believe that you can be saved, then you sin and you're lost again. And then you get resaved, And then you sin and then you get lost again. And then you come back and you repent and then you get saved again. I, there's no rest in that whatsoever. There's no peace with God in that particular theology. And for the latter three weeks, I have attempted to, in, to a degree, in a subtle way, to combat that type of ideology. Because that doesn't allow you to experience God and the peace of God in your heart. 
And so we have, to, we have to understand that that cannot be the will of God. A third thing that I do not believe, and this is where I'm going to spend most of my time today doing my best to clarify this position, I don't believe that it would be the motion or the activity of sin in your life that would result in God taking your salvation because I don't believe that that's how it takes place in the first place. Because the reason why, you say, Pastor, why is that? If it was the activity or the motion of sin in our flesh that resulted in God withdrawing His Holy Spirit, then we would all be saved, lost, saved, lost, saved, lost. I would like to tell you that I didn't sin yesterday, but I wish that I could look at you honestly today and say, I know you didn't. Me and Jack are on the same page today. Come on. He knows what I'm talking about. The reality is this. We all have some measure of sin at work in our flesh because our flesh has not been redeemed. It's waiting redemption at the coming of Christ. But what we have done in the church is we have judged those that have a profession of faith in Christ but still have deeper, more difficult, or far-reaching sinful habits and behavior as being lost because of their sin. That's what I've been attempting to combat over the latter couple of weeks. Now, if one professes faith in Christ and yet sins without conviction, if you sin without conviction, if you sin without sorrow or remorse or shame, then here's my observation for you. Maybe I shouldn't, but I will. Then you are probably not born again. Because when you're born again, your heart is knit to the Father's. And you want to do the will of God. It's not saying that it's easy to do the will of God. It's not saying that it's easy to mortify the desires of the flesh. But the desire of your heart is to be pleasing to God. And if, you're, if, if you sin and there's no conviction or sorrow in your heart or remorse over it, then you really better, count, you better look deep in your heart because you may have believed the lie of religion and you may just be going through the motion while you don't even know Christ. Does that make sense today? But if you, however, have sorrow in your heart, and even though the, you still have the habit of sin at work in your life, then I can in no wise judge you as unsaved. If your heart, are y'all hearing me today? If you're in your heart. See, I believe, let me tell you what I believe about sin. I could spend the whole sermon, and this is where I might wear you away, and you might get fatigued, and you might just say, wow, Pastor Brown went way off on a tangent this morning. But I think you have to understand sin, not only the nature of sin, but also just sin, the action, the motion of sin. I think that's very important for us today, and you have to see it just very briefly. Let me take a moment to talk to you about it for just a second. Sin has a depth or a shade, and it also has a season. We oftentimes judge people at where they are with a particular season of sin, and then we conclude that they're unsaved. And that perhaps is wrong, and we have to guard ourselves. Listen to about sin for just a minute. James wrote this about sin. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, it brings forth death. It's progressive. That sin is at work. When it's conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it's matured, finished, when it's grown, when it's through doing its damaging effect, it will bring forth death. 
John said, If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin. What is sin, Pastor? All unrighteousness is sin. The 17th verse. All unrighteousness is sin. There is a sin not unto death. So there's a depth to sin. There's a different shade and type and it's important that we understand it. Not only is there the difference between the nature of sin but also the motion or the action of sin. And so even before I was saved, I sinned because I had the nature of a sinner. I was born a sinner. I was born as an heir of, Ad, uh, 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 of, of Adam, and so therefore I sinned. But once I became saved in Christ Jesus and, and the Holy Spirit dwells inside of me, then now I, the sin is contained in my flesh, and every day I'm to resist it by the power and the grace of God. But I have to understand the depth of it because I hate the conflict that I'm seeing in the church and sometimes I hate the hypocrisy that I see in the church because what we do is often we judge those who sin we can see and we say, okay, you're thus and thus. And then those who sin we cannot see, we have a tendency to say, well, they're righteous and holy before God. Well, that, you, you, don't ever, you don't necessarily know. Paul said that some men's sins are open beforehand going forth to judgment. And some men's sins will come afterward. Let me give you an example since y'all are really with me on this. Let's take adultery for a minute. Let's pick this up. That's an extreme case of sin. And it, uh, it, it, it's a hurtful, painful thing. And, and probably there are people in our church that's been affected by it at certain levels. So I'm not in any wise trying to bring up the pain of the past. Please allow me to go forward. But I have to talk about it. I'm going to use an extreme example to share with you the depth of sin for just a moment. Jesus taught us that adultery is not just the physical act. Now, that was, a, that was something new. to Now, it's not new to you and I now because we look back at his teaching, but to the Jewish people... They, they, they believe adultery was you were caught in the act. Remember, they brought the woman, threw her down at the feet of Jesus, John chapter 8. Lord, what would you have us to do? This woman was caught in the act that Moses said in the, in the law that she's to be stoned. Remember that? Right? Jesus stooped down, wrote in the dirt, then eventually looks up and said, Well, he that is without sin among you cast the first are y'all with me? It's a powerful principle. He had already caused them to go, well, I don't understand fully what you're saying. When Jesus said, look, he said, if you lust in your heart after someone else, that means in the imagination. God's given us ability in imagination to create picture images and contemplate and plan. And so you can, you can be seated here in church struggling with adulterous thoughts in your mind. Right? Looking good, been on the worship team, sank. You, sat, you stood up when we said stand up. You sat down when we said sit down. You gave. You came to the altar. You shook hands. And then when you sat down, your mind is clouded. Are you hearing me? That's, Jesus said that's adultery. Well, now we live in a generation where it can go one further than that. We live in a pornographic generation. Now you can sit at home when nobody's around in front of a computer screen. You can have pornographic images that can come Right in front of your face. How many know that that's adultery? Come on, let's be honest. It's adultery. If you're married, that's adultery, certainly. It would be fornication if it was out. Adultery if you're not married. Then the last one certainly is, it is the actual physical act. But here's what I want you to see for a moment. I'm using a far extreme example to bring about a spiritual point for just a second. It's all sin. It's all the same sin, but has a different depth. Does that make sense? It's all sin. How many believe it's all sin? How many believe it's all the same sin? How many know it has a different depth? Okay, let me give you an example. The response to it. 
even our response to it. If you have that thought in your mind, how do you combat that thought in your mind? Well, I teach the principle of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, casting down every thought and bringing our thoughts subject to the knowledge of God. The thought enters your mind that tries to lodge within your mind, we cast it down. So again, you may be dealing with this adulterous activity in your mind and we would never know it because it's personal to you. So its effect on us are a little bit shallow. It really doesn't affect me. I don't know. I don't know what's going on in your mind and you don't know what's going on in my mind. Thank God that's the personal aspect of who God created us to be. But I would teach you to cast down those images. Don't let them lodge there. I don't care how good they feel to you. I don't care how good they feel in your mind or to your flesh. If it's not of God, you've got to cast it down and judge it by the Word of God. Okay, well, secondly, if you're caught in the vice of pornography, I'll tell you, that can fragment your family. It can. It can cause your spouse, it can wound your spouse in a deep way. Right? And listen, we're in a culture today, it is inundating us. Come on. Inundating. It's a trap. It's a trap by our adversary. And it can really cut the heart of a, of, a, of a spouse. The physical act can destroy an entire family. Same sin, different shade. Okay? Does that make sense at all for just a moment of time? Why, Pastor Brown, why are you making that? Each death has a deeper effect on the individual. The point I've been attempting to make is it's not necessarily the act of sin that would result in someone no longer being saved. Because in the past, we would say, well, the act of this results in that. But what about the thought that's in my mind? Jesus judged them, in essence, the same. He called them both adultery, but my response to it is different, and its effect in my life is measured out differently, and its effect on other people's life is measured out differently. But we, to a degree, have made the mistake in trying to say, well, this person is no longer saved. But let me tell you, the effect of a continual lifestyle of sin, the point I've been trying to teach you is, is that it can harden your heart. A continual lifestyle of sin will harden your heart until you can no longer believe that Jesus' blood was sufficient for your sin. And therefore, you no longer find that true place of repentance and godly sorrow to find the cleansing that should take place in your life if you have sinned before God. And so the process that I've been going through over the last few weeks is trying to share with you this passage here. Turn, I think they're going to put it on the screen in Hebrews chapter number 3 very quickly. We've talked on this before, but it's very important before we make certain conclusions here in just a few minutes of time. I know this is not as exciting as last week, but give me just a few more minutes. Hebrews chapter number 3 today for just a moment of time. He said, take heed, brethren, 12th verse, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So here's the writer exhorting those. He said, be, guard your heart. Guard your heart because of unbelief, because sin can deceive you and slay you to the degree that you no longer believe. When that happens, you're in danger. It's a dangerous and precarious place to be in life. Does that make sense? See, I believe as long as someone has confidence in their heart and hold fast to their profession of faith, d despite the motion of sin and its damage in their life, let me tell you, you sow to the wind, you're going to reap the whirlwind. 
Solomon said if you commit adultery, he said, how can you take fire in your bosom and not be burned? That's an extreme example. But whenever we sin, we sow to the flesh, we're going to reap corruption. It's just the reality of life. It's where we are. That's why we've got to teach ourselves to overcome as Jesus overcome. In my personal opinion, to truly fall away leaves an individual reprobate or perhaps apostate, and their heart can be so hardened with unbelief that they will no longer find repentance and they would die as a reprobate. I don't necessarily believe it's saved, unsaved, saved, unsaved, unsaved. I believe you're saved. But in the most extreme examples, if this deceitfulness of sin has so twisted the heart and mind of the believer and to the degree that they no longer, it's like the live stream. It's like having a clogged artery, the live stream of faith that's been bringing to you hope and peace and grace and good news. And as cholesterol in your artery begins to close off that bloodstream, suddenly someone has a cardiac arrest. They arrive at that particular place when their heart is so hardened before God that they can no no longer see the virtue of Jesus' shed blood on the cross, then they would be in a dangerous and a precarious place. That's the thing that I see. The reason why I strive to not make certain conclusions is because these subjects are so difficult, but if you were just asking my personal opinion, even though I strive to not make certain conclusions about such controversial subjects, my personal belief is that the scriptures are written in a way, at least the King James translators gave us this version of the Bible in such a way that leads us to the place where we believe that it is possible, that it is possible. It's not exciting, but it's possible. Therefore, that's why we guard ourselves. Does that make sense? That's why we come together to encourage one another to the deceitfulness of sin and its effect on our lives. Listen, I know you may not be that excited when the doctor comes into your, into your, uh, your, your examination room and he examines you and he goes through the process and he asks you all these questions and then he arrives at certain conclusions and he just is frank with you. He's just frank. Look, you better bring about a change of lifestyle or it's destructive or you're not going to live very long. Many of you take no offense at that. You're like, my goodness, I appreciate the time he spent with me. I'm going to make some lifestyle changes. But we come to the church and we want everybody to be patted on the back and feel good on a puffed up pillow of self-righteousness and that's wrong in the eyes of God. Occasionally we need men and women who are courageous enough to tell us that sin is destructive. It is destructive to our lives. I'm not trying to be condemning. I'm trying to rescue us, in essence, from our own ideology that can rob us and allow us to be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. I'm going to skip past Hebrews 6 and 4 and 8, and I'm going to close with just putting a few verses of Scripture. Daryl, join me on the platform, if you would, please, as we close today for just a moment of time. As the writer wrote in Hebrews 6, he said this, But beloved, as he kind of picked up what I believe is the same subject matter, only for the sake of time, I'm going to omit this passage. The writer said this, he said, But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. I'm, I'm trying to reach a conclusion, perhaps, of a very controversial subject. And the issue is, is whether or not a person that was once regenerate or born again can be lost. And you're tempting me to come to a conclusion that sometimes is a difficult matter to, to arrive or different position to arrive at, but I want to say this. I'm persuaded of a better thing for you. I'm persuaded of something entirely different, altogether different for your life. My exhortation is to you as a pastor today is that as I read, I want to go, I want to go quickly, real quickly. My responsibility is this right here. It's in 2 Timothy. I want to jump to these verses here. Here's my exhortation to you to teach you what the Scripture says that you're to do with sin, this activity in your life. Is that me, Phil? 
Is that the Lord saying, hurry up, Pastor Brown? <laughs> Stay with me for just a few minutes, and I'll close with these things here quickly today. I know it's not been the most exciting of sermons for you today, but it's very, very critical to our belief system, I believe, in the Scriptures. To know what you believe and to be rooted and grounded in what this Word says. Here's my responsibility to you as a pastor. If you're overtaken in a fault, to restore you in a spirit of meekness. Yet considering myself, lest I be tempted. Right? Not just to throw you the, you know, what is it called? The, huh? Throw it from the boat. You throw it to somebody. And, no, not the net. You don't want to kill them and drown them. The life preserver. Jill's trying to take them under and make them, raise them up like a harvest or something. <laughs> Caught them in the net. <laughs> throw you the life preserver. I don't want to throw you the life preserver and then me fall overboard and get eaten with the sharks. He said, help somebody, but consider yourself lest you be tempted. Right? Consider yourself. So, so my, here's my responsibility. I want to teach you quickly in closing. We're going to flash some scriptures up there quickly. So well, then what I do with this sin issue, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that he died on the cross, and I believe that his blood was the atoning sacrifice for my sin. So what do I do with this activity of sin in my life? What do I do? Well, I've already shared with you, Romans 6 says it doesn't have dominion over you. Just get that down in your spirit. It doesn't have dominion over you. It's a lie of the devil that says, I have to do this. No, you don't. No, you don't. God gives you the power by the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome sin. 2 Timothy 2 and 19. We're just going to go through these quickly. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knows them that are His. Thank God. He knows us. Amen. And let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That's His word to us today. Romans 8 and 13 says, If you live after the flesh, you'll die. But if you through the Spirit... Mortify. The word mortify in the Greek means to put to death. Put to death the deeds of the body, the appetites, the actions, the motions of sin. He said in Romans 5, the desire to sin. You daily. Paul said, I die daily. Daily to the appetite of sin that's in my life because I live after the Spirit, not after the flesh. That's God's word to all of us. Universal, irregardless of our denominational position in this life. The word to us is to mortify the ungodly deeds of the body. Colossians 3 says, But now put off all these things. Ephesians 4 and 22 says, Put off the former conversation who was the old man. Put it off. The same way you take off a garment, take it off. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 7 says, God has not called us to uncleanness, but unto holiness. 1 Peter 1 and 14 says, as obedient children, let me paraphrase, don't live your life the way you used to live it, but live your life altogether differently by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells inside you. Does that make sense today? Don't live the life the way that you used to. Now listen to this. Here's conclusions. All throughout Scripture, on and on, I just gave you just a brief just skimming over the top of the New Testament epistles, you are taught and exhorted to overcome sin. He doesn't write to unbelievers to overcome sin. He writes to believers to overcome sin. Okay? An unbeliever cannot overcome sin because he's a sinner by nature. Does that make sense? But when you get saved, you're not a sinner by nature and you can overcome sin and your desire to sin and its deadly effect on your life. And so as I'm closing today, 
I wrote, or we read in Hebrews chapter number 12, lay aside every weight and the sin who easily besets us. Here's a challenge that I'm arriving at as a point of conclusion today. The culture that we live in today is a perverted, distorted culture. My, I saw the news this week where the Episcopal Church, I'm not meaning to throw a stone, but this is crazy. Episcopal Church in Little Rock had a, a woman pastor so they thought, only to discover that their woman pastor was a former man who had, was a transvestite. Is that what it's called? Y'all know what I'm talking about, Tristan. And was now pastoring the church as a woman. It's a wicked, crazy world. Who are we to not be rooted and grounded and know what we believe? And again, if what, if, I'm what, if what I'm preaching offends you, I'm telling you, then your heart's really not right with God. You're playing the game of church and religion and you don't know Christ because strong preaching and teaching, confrontational preaching does not, it does not offend the heart of somebody who says, man, pastor, I want to consider one another and provoke one another to love and good works. I need you to challenge me to do the right thing. Come on, somebody. Because my flesh is always wanting to do the wrong thing. I need somebody to challenge me. Well, Paul concluded his epistles to the Corinthians. And he was writing as he was about to come to him. He said through the third time. And he said, I, I'm grieved because he said, he said I, I don't want to show up with a rod in my hand. I don't want to show up with a rod in my hand. He said, because you have, there are many of you that have sinned and you've not repented of this sin. And so Paul was saying, he said this, and I'm just kind of trying to identify with Paul. Paul was saying, I wrote to you to repent of this sin and you haven't repented. He said, and when I come there, I'm going to be strong among you. If I have to, I don't want to, but I'm going to be strong among you because I care enough to get right in the middle of your business is what Paul is telling you and to warn you of the deceitfulness of sin. And I know we live in this, 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 this cloudy, uh, murky area of the church that we have in the world today, but I want you to know today just because I'm taking a stronger position doesn't mean I don't love you. I'm telling you that if you're getting up in the morning with somebody in your bed who is not your spouse, then that's wrong in the eyes of God. If you're going to bed at night in a drunken stupor that's wrong in the eyes of God. If you're sitting in front of a television screen watching other men and women perform sexual acts, it's wrong in the eyes of God and you need to repent and get it out of your life because it's trying to destroy you. And I don't say it because I want to condemn you. I say it because I love you in the name of Jesus and I hate what I see happening in the church. So Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, said with everything, Christ is the one sacrifice. There's only his blood. But he said, when it all comes to it, if you're born again, then lay it aside. Lay it aside. Our heads bowed, eyes closed. Tough subject matter. I challenge you today in the name of Jesus. Now is the time. Now is the hour. Now is the moment when God is saying, come on, church family, come on. This is your moment. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, John said. Come on, is there things in your life that today that you say, Pastor, I've been playing with this thing. I've been playing with this thing. I've been pretending that it's not going to hurt me, but it will hurt you. It will hurt you. Sin is deceitful and it is destructive and it is deadly. And I know the feel-good generation says just do whatever feels good to you. Do whatever you think 
If you think it's right, it is right. That's wrong in the eyes of God. There's a right way of living and a wrong way of living. And the Holy Spirit inside of you can empower you to live righteously in this present age that you live in today. Is there anybody here today that say, Pastor, you know, I've got some struggles in my life. And today, I just want to, I want to acknowledge by the upraised hand in this room right here that I, I want to repent.